how are things going with the new podcast? Pretty well so far. I have some guests that have said they're interested. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, this week, actually going to be talking with David J. Peterson, who created the Dothraki and Valyrian languages for Game of Thrones. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, he uh, is an old friend and was we had interviewed him on Game of Thrones podcast years ago. And then he came into Chicago for a lecture or something. And I went and hung out with him and kind of showed him around the city, you know, my my standard city tour of Chicago. But it was really well received and he had a great weekend and kind of kept in touch throughout the years. And he actually reached out to me. So, yeah, you got a new podcast. You know, I'd love to come on sometime. I said, great. You know, we should talk about something that is not at all language, (laughs) (laughs) even though that's his expertise. I'm like. I kind of want to also do the occasional episode where, like you and I did, we didn't talk about, you know, movies, which is what we usually talk about. We talked about a game. And right. so with David, I want to talk about, I we're going to talk about like music. So it'll be like something slightly out of the ordinary for him and for me as well. It'll just be like a cohesive conversation about something different. Yeah. Sometimes when I have people on Cinescope or wherever else, I, I like to get them sort of doing the thing they're known for sometimes. Yeah. Like uh, there's a puppeteer friend I have who has come on to talk about the Muppets once or twice, but obviously I haven't had you come on to talk about Harry Potter because you, you do enough of that. And so <laughs> I sort of like pick and choose. Okay. This person I think might like to continue talking about their thing, but this person, maybe they want to break from that and not want them to talk about something completely opposite or completely yeah. different as sort of a reprieve well, right yeah, definitely there's like a push and pull there yeah. like because oh i could ask david about language and he would be amazing i mean the guy's brilliant but to not is like the greater temptation <laughs> did you like the uh game of thrones connection that this had yeah with rick and stark i mean who knew yeah, yeah. that that kid could even speak in full sentences let alone <laughs> uh, <laughs> carry an entire film on his back i was thrilled Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 90 of Cinescope. This is Chad coming to you on, well, not the other side of quarantine, unfortunately, but it's because of quarantine that I've sort of been on hiatus for a little while, which might not make sense because, hey, Chad, that means you're spending more time at home and you have more time to podcast, but it also turns home into work and home is also still home. And so everything is mixed together and it just makes motivating difficult sometimes. And so I apologize for the the hiatus, but I'm glad to be back. I've actually got uh four episodes <laughs> scheduled to be recorded in the next week or so. And so I'm I'm diving in headstrong. And first up, you've already heard him talk a little bit. I've got Eric Skull with me. Eric, how are you doing? Hey Chad, it's great to be back. Big things happening with you recently too. You just started your own podcast as we talked a little bit about. Do you want to introduce people to what that is and what's going on with that? Oh, sure. Yeah. No, certainly. Uh, I was thrilled to have you as my first guest for episode one of my new podcast called Thank You for Spieling. The title is explained on the podcast feed, so I won't go into that here. But really just wanted to get a bunch of my podcast friends to come on with me and chat about something a little different than what they chat about on their own podcasts. And uh, you and I talked about a new video game. Yeah, we talked about The Last of Us 2, which we both marathoned like to maybe an unhealthy degree a couple of weekends ago <laughs> when it first came out. Jury's out on that. I played 36 hours in uh, three days. I haven't experienced many after effects or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm doing fine. And my, my sleep schedule is more or less back to normal and probably even better than it was before. <laughs> but yeah, that was fun. I was glad to be on episode one of that. And I'm hoping to probably be back at some point, just like you've been on this show oh, many times. Absolutely. Uh, so go check out Eric's podcast. He's got two episodes out so far. Yeah, two. And, and, and I, even though I'm not committing to being a weekly podcast just yet, I do, I have been planning the next several episodes. So I think as soon as we get them recorded, it'll be a fairly regular podcast as opposed to irregular. So, uh, yeah, super exciting. And, and of course, I mean, Cinescope 
always has a piece of my heart. So thank you for bringing me back. And for once, although I'm sure this has happened before, I couldn't point out exactly when. This is a film that we're going to discuss that you have seen that I had not. Yeah. And specifically watched per your request. I know it's been the other way a couple of times, but this time it was this way. Yeah, and I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on it because you just watched it today and I don't know what your thoughts on it were. (laughs) So I'm excited to talk about it with you. Uh, We'll go ahead and dive into the stats of things. So we are talking about Kubo and the Two Strings. It released on August 19th of 2016, was directed by Travis Knight. This was his first directorial credit and he'd done other things with Leica, the studio that produced this film. He produced Paranorman, The Box Trolls, and most recently, Missing Link. He also followed up this directorial debut with Bumblebee, the Transformers spinoff with Haley Steinfeld, and he's directing an upcoming adaptation of The Six Million Dollar Man called The Six Billion Dollar Man. Adjusted for inflation. Yeah, adjusted, getting a little upgrade there. (laughs) The story for this movie was written by Shannon Tindall and Mark Hames, and the screenplay was written by Hames and Chris Butler. Uh, The music is by Dario Marianelli. And this is the first we've talked about a film scored by Dario Marianelli, I believe, on this podcast. He also scored The Brothers Grimm, Pride and Prejudice, V for Vendetta, Atonement, The Soloist, Eat, Pray, Love, Jane Eyre, Anna Karenina, The Box Trolls, Everest, Darkest Hour, Paddington 2, Bumblebee, an adaptation of Pinocchio that came out last year that I don't think I knew existed, but I really want to watch now. And he's uh, (laughs) scoring an upcoming adaptation of The Secret Garden. And this movie stars Art Parkinson, Charlize Theron, Matthew McConaughey, Ray Fiennes, Rooney Mara, George Takai, Brenda Vaccaro, and Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa. So let's talk about our first experience with the the movie itself or the build-up to the movie. I know this is your first viewing, but you mentioned to me earlier that you remember the trailers for this one. So talk about that a little bit yeah this was a movie that i always intended to see in theaters and i have a pretty good like core group of friends who are or were in 2016 rather avid theater goers and whose opinions i heavily relied on to go like figure out what movie i was going to see because right around 2016 I just found myself seeing fewer movies in general. I decided in Chicago I was going to start taking improv classes, and that actually is sort of pricey. Every eight weeks you pay for a new class. And so I was seeing much less movies, but um, my friend group had seen it, uh, or at least several members of them, and told me how great the movie was. I remember seeing the trailer and always being very excited, but I think that I just couldn't find the time And funnily enough, for years after the film had left theaters, there was still a Kubo and the Two Strings banner right outside of IO, Chicago, literally attached, affixed to the building. (laughs) And it was one of those banners that, you know, you don't know who paid for it, but it doesn't get replaced regularly. So for years, (laughs) there was this reminder every time I'd go into the building that I still hadn't seen Kubo the movie. And for a while, I guess because it wasn't necessarily streaming on any of the services that I had, that I still hadn't seen it until today but i just remember the trailer showing some great animation style and the music and everything was very enthralling and seemed like a really interesting film had you seen any of Leica's previous movies up to this point i haven't seen paranorman what were some of the other films the other one immediately before this was the box trolls okay i believe they i'm looking it up right now i don't want to say wrong information Coraline was one I was going to name, but I wanted to make sure. Coraline was their first, 2009. Okay, I did. It was Paranorman, The Box Trolls, and they worked on Corpse Bride, it looks like. That's pretty much it. That's like super recognizable. Yeah, yeah. No, I I have seen Coraline, but I think that's probably it. Okay, see, I might have seen glimpses of Coraline, but my first experience with Laika was Paranorman. Mm Mm-hmm. And I did not like Paranorman. I wasn't a fan, like, at all. I I think I might have seen it in the theater. I'm not sure. Mm. Or it might have been the year I tried to see everything that that was nominated for Oscars. I was really on top of it that year. And so I bought a DVD or a Blu-ray copy, and I watched it 
twice just to make sure I didn't just like miss something the first time. And I, I still didn't like it. I wasn't a fan. I haven't revisited it since then. So maybe I should, but I didn't like that. That left a bad taste in my mouth. The box trolls looks weird, but then Kubo comes out and I remember the trailers for this one too. There, there are two, I looked them up just to make sure I wasn't misremembering things, but there were two trailers that stand out my mind. There was one that was basically just the opening sequence of this movie. No narration. It was just his mother on the boat striking the cord and uh, dissipating the wave. And it was just like a super cool animation. It's fantastic. It features some music. I'm not sure if it was music from the film or from the scores that existed because it was an early teaser, but it still was really, really cool. But then the, the one that really stands out in my mind is the first trailer that featured the cover of While My Guitar Gently Weeps by the Beatles. And that that is such a cool cover of this song. I mean, I love that song anyways. Big Beatles fan. I like that song. Actually posted a video recently of me playing it on the Beatles rock band (laughs) that I just pulled out (laughs) of my storage. It's a great song, and that that really attached me to the look of the movie and the sound of the movie, and I was like, okay, I really want to see that, and then I didn't see it in the theater. Don't know why. Maybe, again, Paranorman left a bad taste in my mouth. I just didn't Mm. make time for it. I'm not sure, but I did pick it up on Blu-ray a year or two later and watched it, and I didn't remember a lot about it since then. That's the only time I've watched this movie before now. But I remember it making me cry (laughs) and (laughs) making enough of an impact that I have a list that I show to some guests on Cinescope of movies that I would, sure, I'd like to talk about this because I've seen it and I enjoyed it and I'd be open to having a conversation about that. And so you, you picked this off of that list and I was like, okay, cool. It's a great opportunity for me to revisit this. And I am glad I did. And so we're going to talk more about the story. So is there anything about the story or the, the animation, which, I mean, we don't really need to say it, but it's gorgeous, uh, that you <laughs> want to talk about? Yeah. Yeah. And just real quick on, on that cover of the Beatles song, I think that we are now due to play it as Ellie on, on TLOU2 if, if in one of those guitar scenes. Oh yeah. F- figure out how to, and, and, and go full circle with it. <laughs> Tremendous that they decided to close the film with that song. It, it's just such a, a cover. And, and the story similarly is equal parts exotic and familiar. I think that there is a mm-hmm. lot to love about this movie's use of more of an Asian art style and themes and the setting using origami in such a really cool way throughout the film. Again, it's a story not unlike Game of Thrones in a way. Of course, the lead actor in Kubo, Art Parkinson, was also on couple seasons of game of thrones there's in that story it's really about a world where magic is present where magic runs you know alongside daily life now it it had gone away for a little while it had come back that's neither here nor there but watching kubo in this film have sort of an innate relationship with magic and have these people sort of interact with the spirit realm directly and indirectly, these types of stories, I just find to be super powerful. And talking a little bit more about the visuals, we get such powerful visuals from the start. This is the only time I'm going to call this instrument by its proper name. And then the rest of the time we can refer to it as guitar because it's easier. Oh, thank uh, you. But the, the actual instrument is called a shamisen. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. A shamisen, shamisen. So there it is. The rest of the time we'll call it a guitar just <laughs> for ease of discussion. But the way his mother strikes the cord and strikes down the wave. And then right after that, she crashes because the wave comes up behind her and she hurts herself. And then we see her laying prone on the beach with her yellow outfit standing in stark contrast to the, the, the darkness that's surrounding her, the, the dark landscape, the dark sky, the dark water. And then this just yellow that is coming from her really powerful imagery. We also Aside from just like the the look of things, just the way they use the origami as you were talking about in the the first scene where he's telling the story in the town and we witness the the music striking up and the 
the paper starting to fold itself and telling the story. It's so cool. Just like visually, creatively, from a concept, seeing that happen in front of us is really awesome. And that's something that I think Leica does really well is building these worlds where you look at these things and you believe that they're really happening. And in a way, they kind of are. Yeah, they're being crafted behind the scenes carefully and move it this much, move it this much. But it's so cool that so much creativity went into something like the storytelling and the origami and how that all fits together with the music. Yeah, this film has flair. That's really the one word I would use to describe it. I mean, I I did see Coraline and I found it to be, while it was very, very creative, I found it to be sort of bleak. The colors were drained at times, if not always. And I just found the story to be, I don't know, somehow less hopeful and certainly less heartening than this story was. So I really enjoy the the burst of, of color and the burst of emotion from many characters. And, and, you know, in terms of your average these days, I don't want to say kids movie, because I think like many of the animated films of this era, there are wonderful films that are almost more for adults than even children that are animated. But I think that like other animated films, you have some comedic relief, but the underlying story is at times dark, at times scary, and really applicable to life. There's tons of quotes that I've taken notes for about, you know, really just lessons on life and how various people get by. And I I just found every character to be enjoyable. This movie is borrowing from the sort of Pixar discipline in that way, Mm. where there is a real kid-like quality to it, but it's enjoyable by adults. And it doesn't necessarily, without talking about it too much now, it doesn't really have a, quote, happy ending. It's more like happy but sad or happy but melancholy kind of ending. And I really like that they, they were daring to go to a place like that where they, they can teach kids lessons without, I don't know, making it sugar sweet in the ending. Like you, you can make it about the sadness. You can make it about the melancholy and having kids sort of embrace that. Like Mr. Rogers used to talk to kids about how it's okay to feel this. It's okay to feel this. This movie is sort of showing the same thing. Yeah, very much so. And and there's definitely lessons, sort of Rogers-esque lessons to be found in here. And they have sort of sharper edges. I know at one point the monkey, who we do not know yet is Kuba's mother, says we go stronger, but the world also at the same time grows more dangerous. Life has a funny way of keeping things in balance. And how true that is. You know, I, I've mm-hmm. really been reflecting lately as you know, too, on, on, on my own podcast about sort of loss of innocence or how things really seem so different as a kid, now the world is a, a harsher place and I may be a little stronger, but it, it just, this concept of balance and this concept of what we are on the earth to do right now and what sort of spiritual essence or whatever we choose to believe in how that impacts and what bearing that has on our day-to-day lives this film it turns out is exactly the the film that i needed to see this week based on what i've been you know kind of going through in my personal bubble that a film that really opens with such joy for living on earth in this time and interacting with others is a wonderful catharsis, a wonderful pill for these times, an antidote for what I'm going through. Since you mentioned it, I wanted to ask, how long did it take you to pick up on, or did you pick up on the identity of the monkey and the beetle before it was officially revealed? Okay. I was curious about the monkey from the guy. I had IMDb up the whole time uh, when, <laughs> yeah. I, when I was watching the movie uh, because I thought, because all of the voices are amazing. Uh-huh. So I was like, this is, this is one, like this film gets like the best vocal performance out of McConaughey and Charlize Theron. Like it's my, it's, this is my second favorite McConaughey film. We've already talked about <laughs> my first one. <laughs> He's amazing in contact, but this is the very next one on my list now. And Charlize Theron, same. I mean, she's just amazing in truly everything she does. But when it stopped being the mother, because I was really enjoying when she, at the beginning of the film, 
when night falls and he's with her and she ceases to be kind of catatonic and she's telling him or about to tell him about his father i thought this is a wonderful story but when he when all goes to hell and he's just got the monkey i was looking up on imdb i'm like okay so what character who play who's now voicing the monkey and there's not a listing and it's not Mm -hmm. a mother slash monkey or mother slash mr monkey or anything for spoiler purposes so because she was not credited uh, and I was waiting for the monkey to reveal like another name so I could then look it up because it wasn't credited as the film drew on probably about two scenes before the actual reveal. I realized, oh, this is probably just Charlize Theron still. <laughs> uh, what about McConaughey? McConaughey, um, that was different because you have this character that you're told is Kubo's father, which is the paper origami guy that doesn't talk. Right. Like he is openly referred to in the film as Hanzo. And so mm-hmm. I was wondering how they were going to work in where this beetle guy came from. There's almost a Beauty and the Beast esque, you know, servants being transformed into dumbwaiters and wardrobes. And I was just like, this beetle was like, I don't know, an insignia on Hanzo's crest, like how it made human. So actually, I, I was caught dumb by the reveal that the second surviving sister does to say that it's that it's Hanzo's dad. I I was genuinely pleased and caught off guard by that. I don't remember if I was privy to or if I figured it out the first time I watched it, but going into this viewing, I actually forgot that the monkey was his mother. And I probably revealed around the same time you did a couple of scenes before it was officially revealed, oh snap, this is his mom. Mm. And then you have the actual reveal scene where she's fighting the first sister yeah, and the sister says something like love made my sister so weak. But then the monkey's response is no, it made me stronger. stronger. And then she slashes her down with the sword. That is so, that is such an awesome moment, such a powerful moment. And looking at Hanzo and having him be this sort of amnesiac former warrior of Hanzo, this servant, whatever you want to call him, adds a lot of fun to the movie. I mean, it's comedic relief, but also you have this joy with him in discovering along with him what he's able to do or what he's able to remember, like his ability to shoot a bow flawlessly. He says, that's the first time I've done that. (laughs) 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 And there's a couple other reveals like that throughout and you see him bonding with Kubo and you see him bonding in a way with the monkey at the same time. And then at the end, it's revealed, oh, this is this is his father. He's been bonding with his father the whole time. So yeah, I love that it was sort of like a reincarnated-ish version of his parents and he was able to spend time with both of them together after going so long, really without either of them. He had his mom in a limited capacity when she'd come alive at night. But really, he was the one taking care of things. Kubo was the one providing for the family. He was going to the town to perform, to get money, to get food. And they were living separately. He'd wake her up in the morning and sit her down and feed her. And when he came home at the end of the day, she'd be sitting in the exact same spot because, as you said, she was catatonic. She wasn't reacting to anything and she would only come alive at night. And so he didn't really have his mother and he obviously didn't have his father. And so for him to go on this quest with both of them, even unknowingly, and then to realize it after the fact or towards the end of that was really a great journey for him. And I was really happy for him. And then I, obviously we lose them and that's its own struggle. But uh, I have another question for you. Mm-hmm. Were there any moments in the film, <laughs> this one makes me laugh, where you were thinking, but there's three strings. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I spent, I spent. Num- I spent too much of this movie counting how many strings were on his <laughs> instrument, honestly. I think at one point there's like four or six. Like, it's not a traditional guitar by any stretch, but there right. are, like, the, the notes he's getting out of that thing. I, I will say the title of the movie, I suppose, refers to the strings that he uses at the end. Even yes. then, and their memories, one is the hair of his mother. And the other is whatever of his father. So I it's get the, that. It's the bowstring. It's the what? Oh, bowstring. The bowstring. Yeah. 
Okay, that makes sense. So, so I get it, right? The two strings are it's so Kubo and the two strings are Kubo and the memory of each of his parents separately strung together on this thing. But even then, he strings up a third string to fight off his grandfather. Don't know where that string comes from. He plucks it from his head. Oh well, there you go. So himself. So yeah. it's the the Holy Trinity: my mom, my dad, and me. Right. Okay. Like I'm I'm really not trying to criticize. I'm saying oh, no, I, that I in terms of the film title. The two strings when it's the three at minimum throughout the film. I don't know. It's just, you know, it's it's a title. It's just supposed to get you in the door. Right. So I, yeah. I think that's totally acceptable. It it did not dampen the impact of the film on me at all. I, I knew there had to be people out there asking about the three strings versus the two strings. And I probably was one of them, too. But for me, when you see him use those strings at the end, the, the hair, the bowstring, and then his own, it clicks. And it's like, oh, the whole message of the film is him remembering his parents and them living on in him through the memories he has of them and the stories he tells of them. And then the, the using those things to rebuild his instrument and then take down his grandfather makes that title all the more powerful for me. So anyways, we've been talking about characters sort of in a roundabout way. Did you have any specific things to say about Kubo? Well, Kubo is highly resourceful. Given how sad his home life is, how he is, you know, really a relied upon caregiver, breadwinner for his family and all of that, he has no shortage of imagination. And I think part of that is due out of desperation to keep himself occupied during the day when his mother is elsewhere. But I think that it's a real admirable character trait. And a lot of heroes that can see the glass perpetually as half full versus half empty are, are really great and fun to watch. And I think Kubo's definitely that kid, not to mention just his exceptional talent for storytelling, for this magic. It doesn't really come up beyond one of the first times that his mother, the monkey at the time, tells him magic isn't supposed to come easy. You have to learn control. For all mm-hmm. intents and purposes, throughout this entire film, he has exactly as much control as he needs, and that never really comes up again as not being true. So I think that he is exceptionally talented in many ways, including his magic. He's just really learned or felt his way to controlling it. So I just think he's a very skilled kid. He's creative. He's energetic. He's fun to watch. With regards to his control and the magic, you're right. It it does seem pretty consistent, but he is increasing his ability to control certain things. I mean, from the beginning, we only see him controlling pieces of paper in his backpack. And then we see him sort of doing that in his sleep unintentionally, just like his mother did. And then that moves on to the leaves that he used to build the boat. And it just continues from there. And so he's growing in his ability to sort of manipulate matter around him, I guess, which is really cool. He is a great storyteller, but it's really telling that he never finishes the story of Hanzo when he's telling it to the village because he doesn't know the end of it. He, we learn right after that when he goes home and his mother comes alive <laughs> that these stories that he's telling the people are stories that she's telling him of his father and the adventures he went on and the beasts he slayed and whatever else he's passing on to the villagers. But he always stops at sunset, one, because he can't stay out at night, and two, because he doesn't know the end, and it sort of tortures him. When he goes to his mother, he asks, what was my dad like? What was he really like? When he was with us, not, not as a warrior, when he was with us, and she says he was just like you. And he's so proud. He says, like me, I'm like my dad. <laughs> and then his mother says shortly after, never forget how much he loved you, Kubo. And we sort of see how similar he is to his dad eventually because they partner up together unknowingly. And we see how they have similar sense of humor and they goof off together they're having a good time and they both get on the monkey's nerves and it's, it's a great relationship <laughs> that they build and it's because they are so similar. And I can only imagine how rewarding that is for Kubo after the fact, knowing I just spent this whole time with my dad and look how fantastically we got along without us even knowing that connection. Yeah, absolutely. 
seeing this movie made me want to rewatch the Michael Keaton Jack Frost film. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to complete the trifecta of literally every topic I keep going over when I watch movies uh in my head like <laughs> secret dad character or reconnecting with your son kind of you know, I, I, a lot of these themes are very consistent, I'll just say. But I mean, the the comparison can be drawn, as you said, to various Pixar films. I made a list, but I really right down to the Buzz Lightyear-esque character in Beetle, I really felt that Beetle was just like Buzz Lightyear. I mean, it's basically down, mm-hmm. except for maybe some of the first films, you know, sort of straight-faced nature of who or what he is, really down to the argument about whether or not he can fly. <laughs> he didn't even know he right. could fly. It's fly, it's falling with style, I wanted to shout. Yeah, there's that scene where he says, Beetles can breathe for, or go underwater for a long time. And Monkey says, how do you know that? Five minutes ago, you didn't know you could fly or something like that, <laughs> something to that effect. Yeah, there's just a lot of that same humor of like, you you don't know what you're, but it's bravado, I guess, is all it is. That's that's all I mean to say. Comedic relief, bravado. So I, I found a lot of enjoyment in Matthew McConaughey playing that role and the role of Beetle in general as a character. Uh, there's, as you said, when they're both annoying the monkey, <laughs> it makes for some, it makes for some great scenes. And of course, like they've really brought back a lot of stuff I hadn't thought about in years, like the whole I've fallen and can't get up sequence <laughs> you know he's on his back trying to get it. there's that there's i spy with my one eye i mean a lot of these things i hadn't thought about like the game i spy from childhood just are in this movie and then of course there's the i guess made famous by robert de niro and meet the parents but the whole watching you thing where you point to your eyes and you point to the other person monkey says that to beetle a lot of this felt very 90s to me <laughs> And at the same time that we're seeing Kubo and Beetle, his father, build this relationship together on this journey, we see Beetle and Monkey doing the same sort of thing, where they're sort of annoyed with each other at first, or at least Monkey's annoyed with Beetle. But over time, we see little moments of bonding. And again, it's, it's hinting at that relationship that they don't know is there, but it is. And it's nice to know that if they had the chance, they'd fall in love again. Again, to Kubo after the fact, knowing who they both were, looking back, it, it's got to be rewarding to know that his parents were a good match and that they did love each other. And it's just got to be rewarding as a kid, I think, to look back and realize those things. I agree 100%. Now, this movie is not quite bookended, but there's a, a, a scene towards the beginning of the film, right before everything starts to go down with the sisters showing up. And then at the end of the film, where Kubo is at the graveyard, and it, I'm trying to remember the name of this festival. I think it's the Festival of Bo, maybe? I'm looking this up. Bon, the Bon Ceremony, B-O-N, where it's sort of like the Day of the Dead in, I guess, Japanese culture, uh-huh. where they go to the graveyard and they, they invite the, the spirits of lost loved ones to come into these lanterns, and then they set them away on the river. And then later in the film, we see the golden herons, and those are supposed to be the spirits making passage to the other side or to whatever the next part of their life will be now that they've left this plane. And at the end of the film, well, starting off at, at that first scene, Kubo is trying to summon the spirit of his dad into this lantern. We know now why he didn't come because he wasn't dead. Right. But we see Kubo looking around at these families, families, something he doesn't really have. He doesn't have that experience. And he's witnessing the lights come on in these lanterns. And then he sees all of them sending the lanterns off. And it's this experience that is so foreign to him because he doesn't have the family like these other people have. And then to see at the end of the film, he's lost both of his parents now, truly lost them, which is really sad. But he is able to connect with his parents on that spiritual, in that spiritual way that everybody else was able to at the beginning of the film. And so it's a nice full circle moment. And we see his actual dad this time. And it's like, a we've made peace with this. And I'm remembering you, the way that you taught me, mom, remembering each other and living on in memories and in stories and experiencing that final moment before we roll into the end credits. It's, it's really great that we have those, those two scenes that are so different. I found this film to have great economy of plot and like story. It's kind of like 
how in Back to the Future, for instance, there's a lot of setup and payoff. In Kubo, these areas are repurposed and reintroduced. So you come back to the town that you started mm-hmm. the film, and that's where the, the helmet turns out to be that he needs. And you come back to the graveyard for the end battle right after that previously having been introduced. It's just a very good economy of setting to have everything be paid off that was set up in that way. It's just good writing for that purposes. And and it also added like a really keen sense of familiarity, just building off of all the other sort of things that Kubo's getting back to. Like his family, although he didn't strictly have his father and even didn't strictly have his mother during the daytime, all of these stories that he was telling he was surrounding himself with his past, only he didn't know it. And then sort of through this journey, he comes to know it. Did you have anything to say about the sisters or the grandfather? Oh, tons. Yeah, the the sisters are, and, and they're both Rooney Mara, mm-hmm. um, are terrifying. Yeah, they and are. in the very few scenes where they're speaking in unison, it is, I, I wrote down, this is even scarier than Kubrick's The Shining. Yeah, I was about to say, it's it's very reminiscent. That very first time we min- meet them, it's very reminiscent of the, quote, twins. They're not twins, but the the girls in the hallway of The Shining. Absolutely. And, and I don't know that popular media has really duplicated that or done it too often, but it is always to great effect. I was, I was, I, I shuddered a little bit, honestly, and, <laughs> and it, just something about the voice and then the masks sort of expressionless smiling masks but this film one thing i wanted to talk about and i I, this may segue into a talk about the grandfather the film's concept of the afterlife is notably different than anything else that i can remember experiencing there are many references to the afterlife or at least if you presume that the afterlife aka heaven where the moon king and his mother's sisters live is a heaven it's described as a cold place it's described as that everyone there is blind and they never get hungry and they never sleep but it doesn't sound like this welcoming happy place at all right it's not so much heaven as in the next plane of existence if you're good on earth or you believe in something on earth and you move on up to heaven but it's almost like this version is as you said it's cold it's loveless it's compassionless they 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 don't know human traits up there so it is in stark contrast with like our heaven which is really fascinating it's it's nice to get a glimpse into another culture the the wikipedia page for this movie in the summary section starts off in feudal japan and i can say i know almost nothing about feudal japan if you were to ask me about it i would say uh maybe samurai but that's probably the only thing i could pull out of somewhere so I, I like this being introduced to a new culture that is so different from our own. Yes, and I, I don't know to what extent that was sort of appropriated or, or historically used, like this was the afterlife that people believed in in feudal Japan or not. It's the first I'm hearing of it, and I've known concepts such as reincarnation from other media, but this this heaven has a cold concept. Like when Kubo's mother says to him that it was the warmth of his father's look in her eye, the, the warmth of humanity that really pulled at her, and she had never known it before. I was blown away. I was thinking, so, you know, we often think of the afterlife where heaven is this lofty place where there's comfort. But if, you know, we have all these characters who live there calling it cold all the time, and then she describes his his father's look his father's humanity as warm i was thinking man what if earth is humanity man or what if earth is um the heaven like what if our ability as a society to be kind to one another and to love and to experience all the things that kubo's father had for his mother as the quest what if that's the heaven like what if that's the ideal like you're not meant to go to the afterlife until it's strictly your time Kuba's grandfather wants to like pull him up there or whatever and take out his eye so that he doesn't feel so that he doesn't see so that he doesn't know all the warmth that is to be found on this earth it's a really different interpretation of things and it gives a new level of depth to those characters as villains we don't know a whole lot about them except that he's called the what is it the moon king moon king but 
to have the the night be something to be scared of because it does represent the sort of heavens above and have these terrifying characters come down chasing after him with shadows and they're sightless but they still see i mean that that's it's just a new level of scariness i think but it's it's also i mean that's that's not the thing you want to think about next is being cold and dark and loveless you you want to think about the warmth that his mother experienced from his father most of my other character discussion stuff is really going to be in our impact section did you have anything else to say now as far as the grandfather goes you know from story purposes could you tell that it was Rafe Fiennes playing him I could especially the first scene it was very Voldemort-esque oh yeah it threw me off a little bit because he's doing an American accent or what seems to be an approximation of an American accent. Mm-hmm. I definitely was not a hot, like I knew it was him going in because again, I'm to but he sounded different. I was excited. I was like, this is not quite a Voldemort voice. This certainly isn't a Harry from in Bruges voice. Uh, you know, <laughs> this, this is altogether something different. I get it. That's what actors do. They do this for a living, but I was pleased to find that there was not much bleed over that I could really enjoy his voice without it being distracting. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the coldness of this version of heaven, you really hear he uses that same iciness in his tone that he uses as Voldemort in the Harry Potter films. Mm. So, I mean, he was a great choice for the character. And just because we're talking about characters, I wanted to mention George Takai of Star Trek fame, Mr. Sulu. He does voice a character and they even got in and, oh my, <laughs> did, you know, did you notice it? It's, it's a, towards the beginning it. of the film. It's during the story, the, the very first story that Kubo tells oh, with the music and no, origami. No. Oh God. <laughs> I love that. And I love I, I love the little girl character, too. They're just so many lifelike, so, so many lively, like the characters, the things to love about humanity are all on the faces of each of his uh, villagers. Music does play such a strong part of this film. Did you have any standout moments in the music that stood out to you or anything about it as a whole that you wanted to talk about? You know, I knew that you would want to talk about the music, not only because I, I know the process by now, but when I was watching the film, I was like, you know, I bet I would need to watch it a second time to like pick out any one particular part of the music. The music serviced the story so well, it was dramatic when it needed to be, but there was never a moment where I felt like nothing was happening except the music. And so I don't really have any notes about the music. The music serves the story really, really well. Obviously, the the instrument is a focal point for the character and for all the magic that is happening. But from the the beginning of the film, when Kubo is taking up care of his mother, we have a long stretch where we just have music that, I mean, it really beautifully sets the mood. It's, it's pretty, it's got a, a tinge of melancholy to it, but then it grows into something more exciting as we follow Kubo into town. And I have a little snippet of that right now. So this is him with his mother. He starts picking up a little bit, and this is as he's approaching the town. Anyways, I'm not going to play the whole clip, but that is a really cool buildup, and it features some of those strong sort of Japanese-esque themes that you would expect from Fuel Japan. Uh, so it fits the setting well uh, without being necessarily a stereotype. It doesn't feel like something that is overly pastiche. I think that's the right word. It starts off warm and, again, tinged with that little bit of melancholy. There's some sadness in it because, I mean, he's leaving his mother catatonic in the cave. But then it builds as he's growing into town and he's going into doing this thing that he's really good at. And that brings him joy, even though it's what he does to provide for himself and for his family at the same time. But it's a it's a happy thing. And he enjoys going into town. And it's a joyful place where he sees other people performing and doing things. And he he has friends and they're excited to see him, too. So that leads into the story time that we get. And I'm just going to play a little bit of that as well, because this is really great. This is the very beginning of story time. 
Man, that builds so quickly. It's so much fun. And again, it has that Japanese flavor and it also services the story. You can hear the action. You can hear the adventures that Hanzo is going on in his little origami form. <laughs> it, it's really great. Now, I, I don't want to play like a whole bunch of clips, but I have just a couple more quick ones. Something that I really like about the score overall is that it uses a lot of strings. It's a really string focused one. The, the main instrument is a string instrument. Things like in Finding Nemo, which is uh, Thomas Newman's score, or the 1994 Little Women, which is also Thomas Newman. I love when composers feature strings as their primary instrument. In fact, um, October Sky is a movie we talked about, quote, recently, just a couple episodes ago on Cinescope, and that has a very string-heavy score because strings offer this really nice, warm feeling like you're wrapped up in a blanket, <laughs> and you get the, the wind writing, too. You get the little bits of piccolo, pan flute, whatever the, the primary wind instrument we hear here is. But the strings are prominent throughout, and it gives the movie a lot of character. But anyways, here is the ending of the showdown that he has with his grandfather in the graveyard towards the end of the film. And this is a moment that features choir. And there's probably choir sprinkled throughout the whole score. But this is a moment that I really noticed it. And I love the good use of choir in a film score. This is after he has restrung the instrument. And he's bringing the spirits to life around him. And he's standing out to his grandfather, not fighting him. This is a moment. Oh, that is so good. Anyways, those are the few I have to play for now. Dario Marinelli is not a composer I'm super duper familiar with. I listened to his scores for Anna Karenina because, again, I think it was that year that I paid attention to everything in the Oscars and he was nominated <laughs> for Best Original Score. And I also have his music for The Box Trolls, even though I've never seen that film. And so I like Dario Marinelli, and I think this is one of the ones that stands out the most in my experience with him, because it does feature so strongly in not only just the background of this movie, but in the story of this movie as well. Yeah, it's a brilliant work to have the magic be tied to music, because music is magic, and so much of it informs tone and rhythm, and it just, you really do feel it in your soul, like you imagine you'd feel uh, magic if you could control it the way Kubo does. Right. Moving into the sort of impact or takeaway section of the podcast, what is something that stands out to you as maybe a lesson or maybe just a, a standout moment that had emotional or thematic weight to you? The first time that my expectations were subverted in this film, which is always a good trick to get you to pay more attention, is when Kubo first goes to town and the beggar woman, voiced by Brenda Vaccaro, really looks into her bowl and says, two pennies and a lint ball. And you're like, oh God, this beggar woman, like, who gave her a lint ball? Like, what jerk? You know, like, <laughs> this is a woman trying to survive. Like, what's a lint ball going to buy her? But then, she, like, the very next words out of her mouth are, this is a pretty good lint. <laughs> you know? Right. And that's what she tucks away. Yeah, and she tucks it away. Yeah, exactly. So so to really just not only subverted expectations, but the, the glass half full mentality, which I mentioned earlier that Kubo shares, the idea that you really make lemonade out of the lemons that life gives you. And, you know, Kubo, for somebody who is taking care of his nearly, I assume, catatonic mother most of the time, he is not a sad child. He is he has such a sad life or that we would say looking at it from the outside, but he is able to maintain sort of a positive mindset and that permeates the whole film. This movie brings into question, not into question, but it sort of redefines what the word hero means. There's one moment where Beetle tells Kubo that you know what even before you went out on this quest, before you started seeking this armor and these weapons and were trying to actively take down something, you were a hero before this. 
when you were telling a story to the villagers and bringing smiles to their faces, you were a hero. When you were taking care of your mother and providing for her, you were a hero. And I think that's a, a very strong thing, again, for kids to hear. They need to know that heroes aren't just the superheroes that they see wearing capes and fighting bad guys. It's the little things that they can do for the people around them in making their lives better or bringing, just bringing a smile to a face. It's a really strong message. That I mean, that's a small moment in the film, but if it makes a kid think about it and think, oh, I've done that. I've made somebody smile. I have played music and brought joy to people around me. I'm a hero too. I, I think that's a, a really great message. I agree. There's also the whole sort of fact versus fiction part of this story where we see him telling the story in the town for the first time, right? And then he goes back to his mom and she's enlivened and she is telling him the same stories that he just told everybody else and he's into it. But then when it gets to the sort of darker part of the story or she, it gets to the end that she's sort of fading and forgetting, Kubo refers to the moon king and she corrects him and says, no, your grandfather, your grandfather <laughs> did this. This isn't some fictional character in a story that I'm telling you. This isn't a legend. This was your grandfather and he took your eye and he destroyed this family. So you have this question introduced, what parts of this story are real? What parts of this story are exactly that story? What, what about Hanzo is real or not? And so as you progress throughout the rest of the film and you, you're introduced to these crazy things, you've got the, the monkey charm that is now a real monkey. And surprise, it turns out to be his mother. And then surprise, Beetle ends up being his dad. By the way, there's also a giant beetle that, can, <laughs> that has super archery abilities. So I, I like this idea of fact and fiction sort of getting melded together a little bit as Kubo is realizing that these stories that were told to him weren't just stories. And his father wasn't just his father. He was also this sort of larger than life character who made a great sacrifice so that Kubo and his mother could get away. And then we have his mother again go through with the same sacrifice later that does turn her into the monkey, as it were. I think the biggest thing to talk about is the ending of the film, which we haven't really alluded to at all. What happens with his grandfather? So what are your thoughts there? Well, and, and this was so interesting because after being reunited with who he knows are his parents, we lose both of them almost in one like strike, you know, with, with the final sister pulling a fast one, stabbing the dad in the back and the mother had been injured from the prior battle. The fact that Kubo is alone in the back half of the, the, the picture pretty much for the final battle and then wins the final battle. But as we know, and, and you mentioned the very end of the film where we get sort of his parents, but it's not really them or it's their spirits, but they're not like they keep, they're not talking with him in any in any stretch of the imagination. We like of all the people that I wanted back the grandfather gets mysteriously incarnated into a human with memory loss, unless I'm misreading this. And I'm like, and now Kubo's going to have to take care of the grandfather. <laughs> well, for me, what I, I took from what happened with his grandfather was the idea of giving versus taking his grandfather. His name is Raiden, the moon King, whatever you want to call him. He wants to take away Kubo's eyes. And that will make him immortal so that they can be together, quote, as a family. But it doesn't really give Kubo anything. It, it takes away his eyesight, duh. It also takes away his humanity. As we realize, that's what set apart his mother from the sisters and from her father. His grandfather was the humanity that she found in Hanzo. The, the love that she felt from him, the compassion for others, his ability to love. All those things are what made his mother different than the sisters. And so there was a lot to be taken away in what Raiden was trying to accomplish. But what Kubo does in defeating his grandfather, the, the weapons are gone. The armor is ineffective. It didn't help him in this battle. After all, he turns to the memory of his parents, the love that he felt from them and restringing his instrument with those things. He gives Raiden the gift of humanity. He doesn't take anything away from him. He gives him love. He gives him compassion. He gives him the ability to live and to have a fresh start. And I love that scene where after he comes back, he says, who am I? What am I doing here? What's going on? The whole town 
joins in. They, they've just witnessed who this person was and what they were, but they, they also witnessed what Kubo was able to do in talking about the memories of his parents. They give him that opportunity to be what he wasn't in his immortality, to be loving and to be somebody who could make a difference and would be worthy of being remembered by the people who came after him. I mean, they gaslight him. It's a, it's a, it's a group, it's a group lying session of who he, <laughs> who he was. The townspeople all invent a guy that doesn't exist to do all the things they would love if someone would do for them. <laughs> you used to take my dog for a walk every week, you know, like <laughs> it really just, you could, you could, you could see them really abusing it. I love it too. I joke, I jest, but I think that through performing those acts, because he really doesn't, you know, he's blessed with this new humanity and he has a chance of being a good person. I think that through doing that a couple of times, what people say he's doing, I think he genuinely will find how the interconnectivity between humans is what makes life great. And I think that he will truly find joy in those things. So mm -hmm. I like, I don't really find fault with them all lying to him, but they all lied to him and I can't right. get it out of my head. I'm like, this is just, <laughs> they could have just said like, you're hit, you're Kubo's grandfather and you should go live in the cave with him and he'll tell you the story. But they, they immediately sort of, I guess as a community came together, which is also what you want because you know, Kubo no longer has reason to fear the night. Presumably he can go out and attend some of the festivals and parades that the beggar woman was telling him about. And he's really a member of the community now that he doesn't have this spiritual uh, guy hunting him. But so the community is taking him in. The community is embracing Kubo, just like he's embracing his connection to the rest of humanity. So I think it's a really powerful ending. These villagers could have turned against this human embodiment of his grandfather they could have seen what he was previously capable of and torn him down and destroyed him. But again, they gave him the opportunity to be better than he was. Not that he remembers what he was at this point, but they, they, they don't lie about who he was because before he wasn't a person. He didn't have humanity, but now he does. And so they sort of give him a head start into being the best version of humanity which is really great. Yeah, if you come into this world only knowing cruelty, there isn't going to be much else you can get out of it or pay forward. And I th so they are setting a good moral example as well of of taking him in and making sure that he can be a member of the, the group. Did you have any final thoughts about the movie or final takeaways or anything like that? You know, I couldn't help but notice one or two connections to Harry Potter that I wanted to bring up because I know our shared history of Harry Potter. There is of course the three artifacts that he must find uh, mm -hmm. and would put together. He will be a master warrior of some sort. It's kind of a bit <laughs> like finding the, the deathly hallows a little bit, especially because the first one's an unbeatable weapon an unbeatable pointy weapon. And then the armor, the shield is kind of like the cloak of visibility. And I don't know how the helmet is like a stone, but Hey, what are you going to do? <laughs> but, but the big one, the one that surprised me and I, I couldn't stop grinning when I first came across it. It's during the first battle between the sister, the first sister and the mother as the monkey. And it really stood out to me how the sister is talking about her sister as all three sisters and saying, you left us and you betrayed us. And I couldn't help but think of Bellatrix and Narcissa and their sister Andromeda. And all three of them, those sisters in Harry Potter, <laughs> of the three of them, Andromeda marries a muggle and is sort of scorched out of the family uh, as a result of that. But Andromeda is a super badass character for evidence. I think there's podcast episodes where we talk about her, but I found that the three sisters really reminded me for some reason, I just kept getting vibes of Kubo's mom as Andromeda. And when you take into account that both Bellatrix and Narcissa serve Voldemort, and both mother's sisters serve Ray Fiennes, the Moon King. <laughs> the connection is complete. <laughs> you are truly the host of a long-running Harry Potter podcast. 
did that make sense? Did any of that make sense? I, I just got a it does. Really strong yeah, I, I like those connections. It's a fun connection for sure. Anything else? Just a few more Pixar connections, if you'll humor me. Sure. Yeah. The mother as the monkey thing reminded me of Brave with the mother as a bear, where the mother mm-hmm. is transformed into a bear in Brave. This entrusting our fate to a small paper man seems like a bad idea, but it's the best bad idea we have. Definitely strikes me as being a precursor to Frozen 2's do the next right thing kind of narrative. So Frozen 2 ripped off Kubo as far as I'm concerned. I was really tickled by some connections that are never, you know, straight ripoffs or anything. I just think that I like where moral animated films are going and I like seeing them be there be an overlap of certain messaging because presumably kids are watching this and the whole best bad idea we have or do the next right thing or whatever you'd call it is a great lesson and again I've already talked about the whole as you grow stronger the world goes crueler that is an unfortunate fact of life but it is darn relevant I think to nearly everyone those are all fun connections. And like I said, this does have a lot of Pixar flavor to it in making media that is accessible to kids, but also has adult themes. And that's my favorite kind of animated movie is something that can be enjoyed by multiple age levels and that doesn't talk down to children. This is a movie that teaches kids about love, but it also teaches them a lot about loss and about how that loss is okay. We move past it and the people that we lose live on through remembering them. It's a similar message to Coco is that people live on in whatever the next plane of existence is through us remembering them and through us telling stories about them and loving them. So I think that's really powerful. This isn't a movie where Kubo ends with both of his parents and his left eye is magically restored. This, this isn't that kind of movie. <laughs> I, was, I was expecting that to happen, but I'm glad it did Oh, were you? <laughs> Again, I've used this word multiple times. It ends with melancholy. Okay, well, if that's all we have to say, that is the end of the 90th episode of Cinescope. That's a, a big number. And one we should have hit a long time ago, guys, but various hiatus, hiatuses. <laughs> hi, 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 I, don't, I don't know. That's a conundrum. Hiatuses. It's hiatuses. Okay. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll stick with that. But <laughs> we're still going. Again, you got lots of episodes coming to you soon. Thanks, Eric, for joining me for this one. Thank you very much uh, for having me. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Podcast and at Pod on Twitter. Please continue going over to iTunes and dropping us a rating and a review. That would be a big help uh, since things are ramping back up for hopefully for a long time. You can also email feedback and ideas to me at the Podcast at gmail.com. Now, Eric, let's hear all of your plugs and things you got going on. I will keep it real simple this time. Find me on Twitter at Spielerman, S-P-I-E-L-E-R-M-A-N. The reason I'm keeping it simple is right in my bio there on Twitter. Also links to my podcast. Thank you for spieling. And I will no doubt be posting uh, about all new episodes of my new podcast. You can also find MuggleCast on there through there. My Harry Potter podcast got a little taste of my Harry Potter analysis on this show. (laughs) (laughs) It's just one sampling of what I bring to the table every week (laughs) over on MuggleCast. So yeah, just check me out on Twitter. That's where I live. And uh, if you are just listening to me on this show for the first time, please check out the previous amazing movies and amazing discussions that Chad and I have had in multiple areas. I just, I love every movie that we've talked about, and this may be my favorite animated film now. So thank you wow. so much for sharing. It I am so glad. And it's funny, you know, we have this running joke where we like to talk about movies that feature dad issues. Mm. <laughs> And you randomly picked this off of a list as something that you would like to see. And guess what? It has dad issues. So I don't know what the deal is. (laughs) I don't know who's like controlling the puppet strings, but uh, it's just a weird coincidence that yet again, we talked about a dad movie. Yeah. And I, and I'm going to watch October sky, which I know you also did just talk about, but I've heard there's one or two dad issues in there as well. Yeah. Just a couple. (laughs) So you should, (laughs) you should go watch those. I can't wait. Well, to close off, the best place to find me on social media is on Twitter at Chadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. 
You can also find the archive of my other podcast in American Workplace, where we talked about every episode of NBC's The Office uh, before people from The Office started talking about it, by the way. And uh, <laughs> just a little bit of shade. They just announced another one, but whatever. And we're also still releasing bonus episodes that were previously exclusive to Patreon to the normal feed. And those go basically to the end of the year. So even if you've already listened, make sure you check back the feed because you're still getting new stuff from us if you weren't subscribed to us on Patreon before. So you can find that where podcasts can be found and at workplacepodcast.com. All the show notes and contact information for this show, including a link to Eric. If you would like, you can click guests up at the top of thecinescopepodcast.com and then find Eric and it'll show you all the episodes he's been in and all the movies we've talked about. So you should do that. Now, that's it. Thank you once again, Eric, for coming on the show. And I look forward to the next time we talk, which will hopefully be soon. And that's it, everybody. Thank you for listening. Have fun and celebrate movies. That's it. Love it. Love it. Good times. I thought that was a lot of fun.